Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speech Shop. Hey, we're on Patreon. And that means you can help to ensure the continued survival of the show by making a modest financial contribution. There are some expenses uh, involved in doing the show. Not many, but um, basically, if you want to hear Speech Shop from now and into the future, get on Patreon and bung us some cash. Stuart Haslam runs Haslam's Body Repairs in Bolton, Lancashire, the sort of backstreet garage where you might expect to find, oh, I don't know, a few high-mileage sort of five-door family runarounds, the odd crumpled Nissan taxi or something like that. Instead, in their relatively modest premises, you would find some of the world's greatest cars. W.O. Bentleys, Chain Gang Fraser Nashes, the Gondas, Ferraris, that sort of stuff. The work that they do there is so highly thought of that people from around the world bring them the finest cars for repairs and restorations. Um, he's a real anecdotalist. I'm sorry, the, the Lancashire accent may be... My accent gets even stronger when I'm talking to Stuart, so I apologise for that, but it was fascinating to find out what it takes to work at that level and to that standard and what is actually involved in restoring these old cars. My guest this week, we will have him back because we've barely scratched the surface. Stuart Haslam. Stuart, do you watch what? these programmes that they have on the telly where they restore cars? Uh, yeah. And what do you think? What do I think of them? Yeah, what do you think of them? Go <laughs> 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 on. I, no, no, I'm not, I'm not allowed to say what I think of them. But, no, it's false. At the end of the day, if they've ever worked in a, a body shop and what have you, well, then they'd realise them times that they say this car has been restored in. No, they're not real. Um, it's, I've been doing this since I was 14. I wish I could do them in them times. I might be able to make a living. <laughs> but, uh, do, you get people, no. do you get people coming through the door who've seen of your workshops, where I have been only once, but I have been up there, and um, some amazing cars. I'm not, we're not saying where it is, but you've got some amazing cars in. Um, do you have folk coming in that have seen these programmes going, right, OK, all it needs is this, this and this, and then you have to give them the hard word. You have to say, well, actually, we've had a look at the car, and what you'll find is that on top of what you just said, it also needs this, 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 this and this. The favourite word is, like you just said, just. Yeah, just. And there is no just in this job. It's not not if you want it how you want it. Um, a majority of people just want to hear what they want to hear. They don't listen to the real truth at the end of it. And, and, they, and no disrespect, a lot of people go home and they say, oh, I can do that myself. And, and yeah, to a fashion, they can. And I'm not disputing that. But it's not what they think it is. And in a lot of cases, I get my customers actually involved in doing this job with me, taking part. Right, can you do this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then two, three, have you done that? Well, well no, it, it were harder than what I thought it were. And this happened and that happened. And I said, well, that's why I'll give it you. So you realise that, yeah, it's... You can do it, but it's not a just job. 
It's it takes as long if you want a good standard, and I'm not saying concourse, I'm talking so that somebody can walk around that car and say, That's beautiful. You've got to spend the time. If you don't spend the time, you you, you know, you don't get it. But uh, I was yeah. I yeah. think people outside the business or the interest, if you will, whether they're like you, who's professionally involved in a very hands-on way, literally at the, the tip of the spear, doing the uh, the hands-on work on the car, or whether it's an idiot like me who just talks about it or writes about it. We, we kind of know, because we've both spent a lot of time in this world, but people outside would think, oh, it's just about money. But I don't think it is. I think a lot of people who buy an old car with an idea of doing it up, I'd, I'd really like to know what you thought. I'd really love your honest opinion. I'm sure you'll give me your honest opinion. I don't know why I said that, because I'm sure you will. I think a lot of the time, they don't want to appear foolish. They don't want to look as though they bought a pig in a pork. So when they come to you, one of the things that they do is they say, it only needs this, this, and this, because they'd like to feel that they've bought the car shrewdly, they've bought it at a good price, they've not had the wool pulled over their eyes. Blimey, I'm going down some 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 literary tangents and diversions today, but do you know what I mean, Stuart? They don't want to look daft in front of people like you by bringing you a car, and then when you point out the various problems with it, it's not about the money, it's about them feeling embarrassment because they bought the wrong car. Yeah. One of the things that I've said on numerous occasions, and that is that majority of people who buy a classic car have this picture in their head that basically they can get it restored, they can do a bit of mechanical themselves, and they can get this done and get that done. And at the end of it all, if the car is worth £20,000, well, they've only spent ten. And they can always get the money back. And they work on that principle that I don't want to spend more on it than the car's worth. But then again, on the other hand, if they play golf, do they expect at the end of 10, 20 years that they're going to get all the money back? Do they, do they expect to make a profit? Do all them trips away and all the things... And basically, the memories. And a proper, true car collector realises that there's a cost. And and to make them memories, usually there's a cost. And it's not just about um, the, the end product. It's the journey. And I've had customers that have come to me and uh, and said, I want this car restoring, blah, blah, blah. And I've said, well, it'll cost you more than it's worth. Oh, I don't want to kind of spend that much. But then again, on the other hand, there's a lot of other customers that, well, I just I just want it right. I want it, I want it how I remember them when I were a kid, or this and the other. And usually, people who have a passion for cars, it's usually their era of cars that I were only thinking I have a, an old TVR. It's, it's not valuable in relative terms to some of the things that I've worked on. But 
that were my pinnacle of, of when I really, really did see the beauty of cards. And I were probably 13-year-old. And a lot of people are the same. That that's their era. Between, like, 10, 12, if they've got a passion for cards, they then start, and, and like, no, classic cards. I've, I've seen people who class their Morris Marina as being a classic car. A lot of people wouldn't actually say that, but that was their memory car. And, and that's what a lot of it is about is the memories that them cars have made when they got attached. And they are just pieces of metal. And beauty is in the eye of the older. You know what I mean? It's not always about this fancy Ferrari or whatever, you know what I mean, that, that gives people the bus. Um, so, yeah, uh, I've, I've worked on... I'm sat in, in my living room now and... You know, not bragging. There's probably a million pounds worth of cars, if not more. Well, when I say a million pounds worth of cars, I've got a Bizzarini, I've got an 8-litre Bentley, I've got a Racing Mark 2 Jag, I've got a Lagonda, um, I've got an Alpha 8C, I've got a... Um, Aston Martin... Stuart, we're up to... Stuart, can I just say something? We're up to way, way more than a million pounds, mate. If you, we're up to significantly more than a million pounds. I know, I know that. If you can show me where I can buy them cars for a million pounds, let's go there right now because I can make one phone call and I'll be buying them all for a million pounds, no problem. No, but I, I, I see, I, I see what what you're getting at and where you're going, mate. And the fact that you mentioned that Bentley, the Derby Bentley, has led me on to what I was going to ask you about next which was the art of restoring things so that they look like they are 40 50 60 100 years old rather than restoring them to perfection and then putting them on a car so that they stand out like a sore thumb yeah we over the years and we've done cars that have been in magazines and we actually had an article, and it said, slightly over-restored. <laughs> it, it, it was too good. And in the last, what, 10, 10, 15 years, probably, we've gone down the road, and, and we've never really made plans. We've, we've just allowed the business to take us where it wanted to go. And we've finished up at this stage, which is good for me. I'm, I'm in, well in my 60s now, that... We work on um, 30s cars that don't always want to look brand new. And so there's certain things you can do to, to actually restore cars so they look like they were done 50 years ago. But it, it's not just easy. We've actually had a new set of carpets made for a car and you come into our workshop and the brand new carpet, all beaded and leather beaded, and and we're walking over them and wiping our feet on them as we're going to the toilet. And not for a day, I'm talking weeks, so that them carpets look like they've had a life. 
and there's we we put aging pro products in in the paint. We use cellulose paint. We use synthetic paint, um, just to try and get that that look of age. But a certain amount of it is time. It's I'm look like I say I'm looking at an Alpha HC here now that we did 20 years ago, and I know if I went to that car now, it looks aged, and I mean it looks like it's a 30s Alpha HC that were done in the 30s because it, the paint has gone. You know what I mean, Stuart? Um, so, tell us, yeah. tell us how they used to paint cars back then. Was the different thinking in different car making countries? Did the Italians do it different to the French, to the British, to the Americans on, on quality well, on quality cars? Well, I don't know about when I say I don't know about the painting, um, but one thing I do know, and this is um, from experience, and that we're working on a a Ferrari 308 when we was um, doing with Lou Lorenzini in Presswich, which some people might still remember. I remember. Um, you I, remember I, Lou, do you? Well, I'm a very, um, I'm a very lad. So how could, how could I, how could I, you know, technically Presswich is part of Bury, Britain's smallest metropolitan borough, the six towns of which Presswich is one. But uh, yeah, Lorenzini, I mean, that was... That was a, a magical name. If, if you were into, you know, your machinery, your cars and your bikes, then in the same way that sports motorcycles in Manchester or Bauer Millet or um, Ian Anthony in Bury. In my hometown, it blows my mind sometimes, that, Stuart. As a lad well, grow, growing up in the, in the 70s, I could go to the bottom of Wormsley Road in Bury, which is, you know, Bury's like Bolton where you're from. It's a rough old industrial town. There's nothing yeah. very. There's nothing too pretty about it. And one of my strongest memories is walking to school as a kid. I lived right in the town centre. I'd walk past the abattoir, which, if you remember, in Berry was right in the centre of the town, and the stench coming off that place was. I mean, you could cut it with a knife some mornings, and I used yeah. to think, even as a kid, I used to think, why did they have that in the centre of the town? <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. Because people didn't want to travel. Well, it's because where the market was. <laughs> yeah. Very known throughout the land for its its big outdoor market. And obviously, back then, you wanted to... It, I sound terrible, some people won't, won't like this. You wanted to slaughter the beast, as my grandfather John would say, John Berry. You wanted to... A farming man. You want to slaughter it next to where you sell it. You don't want to yeah. be tra- you don't want to be doing it somewhere at distance and storing it and transporting it and all that. You want to do it there and then, bump the way it's done on the continent, the way you see it done in Spain, Italy, wherever it was done here. You, the animal was slaughtered and the meat was sold on the market, which was next door to the abattoir. But my point being, we're not in Walton on Thames. We're not in you know we're not in St Albans. We're not in the the leafy parts of the southeast of England. We're in a couple of tough, slightly down on the real industrial towns in the north but as a kid i could walk to the bottom of warmsley road and look in jim sandiford's window where he had all kinds of motorbikes including he was the importer for montessa which were the spanish built off-road trials bikes and then immediately across the road ian anthony who were porsche and ferrari dealers in bury lancashire in the 70s and the 80s almost you know almost beyond belief you don't really associate those marks with the sort of places that, you know, 
a rough, rough old towns that, that we're from. But yeah, Lorenzini, oh aye, I remember him. I can't remember where I've gone with that now. I was getting all, I was getting all passionate about, because here's the thing, and you and I have already spoke about this. That's what's get. That's what gets you started. We had somebody on a few weeks ago who'd had a Porsche 928 from New, and I said to him, bloody hell, I remember going up as a boy and looking at the Porsche 928 in the window of Ian Anthony's in Bury and thinking, that, thing's lo- that thing looks like it's from outer space. Because I don't think people realise it, it was the 40th anniversary of the launch of the Sierra the other day. And again, there was another car, not as ambitious as the 928 and not as technologically advanced but do you remember seeing a ford sierra for the first time it was like what oh, the hell is that oh yeah absolutely but lou were the first lou were the person that actually set us on this road and what actually happened was he he like you say we're down Wandley road and there were just sheds with towels on the roof and a towel came off the roof and hit a roof of a Lancia, and it were aluminium, an aluminium-bodied Lancia. And he heard that we worked on aluminium. So he brought it down to us, and we repaired the roof. And that was the start. And then he introduced us to um, a dealer um, who it probably is the longest-standing classic car dealer in England, and that's Brian Classic. And uh, he introduced them to Brian, and basically, and that's where it started. And I have loads of memories of Lou. Um, I picked a, believe this or not, I drove a 275 Ferrari from Presswick to Bolton, just in my 30s. You know, for somebody to get the bum on that seat now, you'd have to be somebody special. I've drove a, a Lancia Stratus, and... Um, from, from Lou's, that we, we were actually going to looking at an AC Cobra that um, at that particular time Lou were doing for William Lochran, and we didn't know where William Lochran's showrooms were, and he said, well, I'll meet you at Orich. And what did he turn up in? A twin-turbo GTO. And uh, as he come up at the bridge, and we tucked in behind him, and we were in a, a Cavalier, 160 brake horse, which we thought like were a fast car. And we set off down the slip road. He went straight into the outside lane. I followed him. And my dad said, how fast we're going? I said, 100. He said, let him go because he were disappearing into the distance. <laughs> so, so, yeah, he was he was a character, Willow. And we had some really good memories, Willow. Um, People say, I mean, you know, I often mention Lawrence Millett on this show because, um, you know, R.I.P. Lawrence. We fell out just before he died, which is very unfortunate. It still bothers me. Over over nothing. Over nothing. And so, um, you know, I'd say to people, if there's somebody like that who's been a big influence in your life and you've had a disagreement, try and sort it out because... They might not yeah. be. There. They might not they be around. Be Neither yeah. of you might not be around for much longer. Anyway, um, and the reason I mention him is because, like you've said, he was such a character. You know, there's something he, he about like there's something about people who work in in the 
collector car or special interest car or whatever you want to call it. The people, I'm not denigrating people who go to work. My pal Greg runs um, a Lexus, Toyota Lexus dealership, and he's a straight ahead bloke, firm handshake, looks you in the eye, his words as good as his bond, sound lad. We were at school together. But I don't think he would operate as successfully in that collector car world because I feel that people like um, Lawrence Milley, Andre Bloom, Brian Classic, William Lochran, you know, those guys, old uh, Stanley Manners, you know, another one that's gone, they sold the cars as much on their cut sort of larger-than-life personality as in the as in the virtue of the car, buying a car from them was a whole experience, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they they are all they are they're all different kind of people, and uh, yeah, and it, it's sometimes it is hard actually dealing with certain kinds of people because they have their own way of dealing, and and. There's a lot of people don't like me because I speak my mind. Um, <laughs> join the club. Right, hey, Stuart, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, but I were only talking to my wife about it. At, at the end of the day, yes, what usually happens is as a thought comes in my head, it comes out my mouth. And sometimes I, could, I should keep it short. But... I'm not one who won't listen to somebody else. If I'm doing something, I'm not the type of person that says, this is how you do it. I'll, if I'm doing it and somebody says, well, can you not do it this way? Then I'll, I'll look at it. And in most cases, I have tried quite a few different ways of doing things. And usually you, you, you find, yeah, that's a quicker way of doing it. Or, but this doesn't work then. If you do it like that, then you finish up with this. And so, and you do find ways of doing things that suit you. Um, I have a, a panel man, and, and he has this way of, that his, his aim is that once he's done it more than once, he's changing it to find the fastest route. Well, that's all right when you're making a panel, and it's something that, you're not working to the 10th degree where somebody comes along once you put paint on it and, and they say, oof, that's not very good, is it? Because everything I do is what you see. It's the finished article. Now, somebody who's actually, and I'm not putting them down because they are absolute fantastic and craftsmen, but they only get it to the stage where it needs to be finished. There's an odd one out there. Well, when I say an odd one out there, I'm not going to be naming any names, which I could do, um, that do spend the time, but it usually takes double the time to, to what it should take when you're saying, right, well, it's ready for painting. Stuart, um, speaking of time, let's go back in time. To the fourteen-year-old you setting out on this journey, we could we can say that. Um, how did you get started? Well, it was before I was fourteen, really, because the school actually before now was rung the workshop up when I was down at the workshop and, and wagging school as you did in them days. 
um, spoke to my father and said Stuart hasn't been into work for into school for uh, a few days. And yes, he has been into work because he's with me, <laughs> which he didn't tell him that. Um, he said, "Well, no, no, he's not here." And uh, and then as he got off the telephone, he said, "You better get in the car, Stu, because uh, they're sending Wagmaster around." <laughs> so so anyway, yes, when I will even. I was not the best at uh, academic. It, it, and my dad knew that right from the beginning. But he could see that I had a skill in my hands and he could see I had a bit of a passion. And I was quite a patient person, you know what I mean? I weren't a, a giver-upper because my dad was one of these kind of blokes and his motto was that um, there's no such word as can't. Uh, there's a word as... I don't want to, but there's no such word as can't. So when I turned 14, or nearly 15, my birthday dropped in August, um, and I left school in the six-week holiday, where did I go? Straight to the workshop. But before then, he'd asked me what I was going to do when I left school. And I said, well, I'm coming to working for you. And he said, what do you mean you're coming to working for me? And I said, well, I'm coming to working for you. And he said, you're not coming to work him for me, because he had a wicked sense of humour. He said, this is a not, I can't really say this on radio, a pretty dirty job, and you won't be doing this job. And I said, well, I'll go and work for another garage then. And obviously I did go work him for my dad. And I think, when I think back, he weren't a man that kind of um, complimented you a lot, but the biggest compliment he ever paid me, I think, was when he said, if it weren't for you, Stuart, this business wouldn't be where it is now. And and that was one big compliment to me. And that he he realized that my hard work and passion had, had dragged the business from where it was because we were a backstreet workshop. When I say a backstreet workshop. He was very talented. Um, he could cut a car in half and put it back together, and uh, and it was safe. And like I say, he was he was a craftsman, and he was a character. And they don't make them like that anymore. Or very very few. There's a few. I think they do. <laughs> I th- I I think you've just. I- I've met enough people and spoken to enough people on this radio show, and I, Stuart, I have had some proper characters, including you. So, um, how do you end up with that collection of cars that you have in your workshop now that I saw when I came up to you? How does your reputation grow to the extent that people start bringing you Alpha 8Cs, Fraser Nashes? ACs, Bristols, Lagondas, Bentleys, those sort of cars. Did you always work on those sort of cars, or, or was it Fords and no, Vauxhalls at I one point? <laughs> when when we were on the three-day week, do you remember that? Yeah, I'm all, I'm, I'm, well, I never did it. I was I was a boy at the time, but I do remember it. Yeah, my father ended up on it. My, my dad worked most of his working life, came from a farming background, but... Um, uh, ended up working in a paper mill. He was he started there on a Saturday morning, sweeping up, and 20-odd years later, he's one of the three blokes that ran the place. 
and that was a, a, well, big, a big paper mill. And I only went there once. I only went there once, and I thought I couldn't believe it. I don't. I don't know if Bury's a paper town. Bolton's textiles, isn't it? And uh, yeah. Bury, there were. It was all paper mills, and I don't know. I don't think textiles is the same, but the paper production back then involved an enormous amount of heat and noise and what just unbelievable. I went. I had to go in to find my dad. And I went in, I was, I was taken into the mill and it was like descending into the, into hell. The noise, the noise, Stuart, and the heat. In the middle of winter, they had to have all the doors open because the amount of heat that it generated and these giant machines just thundering, well, thundering away 24 hours a day, three eight-hour shifts, yeah. 24 hours a day. Yeah. Somebody said to me, oh, yeah, very Lancashire. This is when... It, a while ago, I was talking to an older person, and he, he was from down south somewhere. He said, "Oh yeah, buried." He, he said, "You know, that's the time where you can read a newspaper at midnight," and that was because he'd read somewhere that the paper mills in Bury produced so much light and ran twenty four hours a day on three shifts that you could stand in the town centre at midnight and read a newspaper in you know in the middle of the night. And he need remembered that. You know, he must have read it in, like, a, the boy's book of facts or something like that when he was a lad. But, um, yeah, I mean, I remember well, me. I, fa- used to, I used to work with my uncle, and he worked in from... He, after he came out of his national service, he worked in the cotton mills. And you couldn't... From the other end of the workshop, you didn't call him because he could, he could read your lips. Well, they call it Memoing, don't they? Yeah. Uh, do, you know, um, do you remember when Les Dawson and Roy Kinnear used to do that? Um, I'm old enough to remember working on the market in Bury and seeing women, particularly women, who worked in... Because here's the thing, they, they talk about, oh, in the 60s, women started to come into the workplace. In Lancashire and Yorkshire, not as much Yorkshire, but in Lancashire, women were always in the workplace. Women, there was no, yeah. like... The cotton mills, the textile mills and paper mills and factories, they all employed women. Women were, you know, there, there were certain jobs in the mills that were done by men, mainly, and then there were other jobs that were done by women that required... Women seemed to be very good, and I have gone into this, I, I think I actually for once know what I'm talking about. Women seemed to be better at the things that required very good eyesight and dexterity. You know, Al- so... And, yeah, aluminium you, welding, when the war were on, all the aluminium welders were women, because they had a softer touch. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's so many... My father, when uh, when he was serving his time, were a sheet metal worker, and he would have to go into the mills to repair the machinery, the guards, and it used to petrify him, because he used to have to get past all the women, because <laughs> they were characters, just the same as the men. <laughs> well, it was, the thing I was explaining, me boyd it was exaggerated speech, silent speech. So you'd mouth the words in an exaggerated way. We can't do this on radio, really. I'm going to have to explain no, what was. A, you'd mouth it in an exaggerated way, but you wouldn't actually say anything because the sound of the machinery was so deafening. There was no point in actually verbalising. So what you'd do is you'd exaggerate the words like, "Do you want to get a cup of tea at break time or whatever?" To your f- friend across the the other side of the mill and they would learn over time to lip read 
And that's basically what me mowing was. But is it, people forget, I, I'm involved with a project at the moment that's uh, writing a script that's set in Manchester in the 1850s. And we had to do, I've had to do quite a lot of research about the cotton industry in Lancashire. And we're kind of getting off the point, but I think it's kind of on the point because it explains why there's a rich heritage of engineering. People think about this part of the world principally, I think, in terms of the cotton industry, the textile industry, the paper industry, that sort of stuff. But that spawned a lot of engineering because the industry couldn't function without talented engineers. Yeah. At one point, I've checked this statistic, it's, it's mind-blowing. At the height of the Lancashire cotton industry, which lasted a long time, it wasn't like a decade or two decades, it was a good half a century. The height of the Lancashire cotton industry, they were processing in this part of the world a billion, a billion tonnes of raw cotton a year, a billion. And John Rylands, who they think was possibly the richest private citizen, i.e. not a king or a prince or whatever, the richest private citizen in the world, his mills produced 45 tonnes of cotton material a day, a day, which made him, as they say, the richest private individual in the middle of the 19th century in the but world. But yeah. It's but, yeah, but, uh, yeah, we, we, I don't want to get too much into it because I'm, I'm full of all this information about it at the moment and we'll spend all our time talking about that. The point I was trying to make was, and I'm, think, I'm trying to relate it to, to, to what we should be talking about, really, is that to support that level of industry, there had to be a lot of talented engineers to, keep, to build that machinery that drove industry, to maintain that machinery, to repair that machinery. I mean, you know, like you've just been saying, my dad remembers a part in the mill, a vital part failing, and like the race against time to repair it, he was he was saying to me, every hour that 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 the mill was silent was yeah. you know was losing an enormous amount of money. And so people yeah. had to be able to you couldn't wait for the part to come from wherever that machine had been made. A man had to come and if he couldn't repair it on site they had to make it from scratch. Yeah. 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 And so Somebody you end up... already on making it. Yeah. As soon as it broke, they were an engine. And in fairness, it still happens now to a degree, but nothing like there's a mill up near us, Redbridge Mill, and there's probably four or five engineers up there that keep that mill running. At the end of the day, when something goes wrong, they can't just, all oh, right, we'll get some parts in. But how did we get on to mills? Because we're talking about we're talking about <laughs> how you end up with the skills to do what you do and the lads that you work the lads that you work well, one with. One of the things you asked was how did we get from where we were then to where we are now, which isn't very far really. It's probably about four mile away, that's all. Um, and the building itself to most people would look at it. It looks like we've been stuck in time. You look in our workshop. And you probably got that, didn't you? It, we're like in a time warp, you know what I mean? We're, and But I can remember in the three-day week actually re repairing a Reliant. Well, it wasn't a Reliant. It were a bomb buggy that had been in an accident, a fiberglass bomb buggy that had been in an accident. And we, we only had my dad's fishing lantern, 
because we had no power, it were like end of November, snow on ground, no eating. So, yeah, we've it, it's not been an easy ride, but it's been a nice journey. You know what I mean? I can turn around and say, well, we've, we've come from there to here. But I think the main thing is, like we are still doing, I'm on day off today because I'm 65 year old. But my brother is still down there, and he'll be wet flatting and polishing um, CCM motorcycle, the um, liquid mercury tanks that we do. What how we get to where we've got is that if we take something on, if it's, when I say possible, within our realms, we try and perfect it. We try and get it as good as we can get it. And like I say, Andrew now, he's got maybe 30 CCM petrol tanks that he's doing. Um, he's making nylon petrol tanks look like aluminium. We had two guys in yesterday, um, very influential fellas, and one of them spotted the tank and they just took it for granted. It was it were made of aluminium. But it's not. It's pain. Yeah, well, that's what I thought when I came to see you, because they said, yeah. what do you think of that? I said, it looks fantastic. I said, how do you, how do you form it on a, on an English wheel? And you went, no, no, it's plastic. I was like, it can't be plastic. Oh, yeah, it's plastic. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. said, how do you do that? And they said, we're not telling you. <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, at the end of the day. But, but if, even if I told you, it's, it's something that, I could tell you exactly how to do it. But you'd have to kill me. But the chances are you wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks, Stuart. <laughs> and, if you, and if you didn't, well, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about somebody who had a skill of painting. And even if they could do it, the chances are they wouldn't want to do it. Because for Andrew to do one of these tanks, and it's hard work, from a tank that's painted and polished to most people's good enough standards, that's where he starts. And five hours later, that's where he gets to the, so that it looks like aluminium. And that's every tank. And one little tiny bit of dust, that's it. You start again. Yeah. You're back to square one. Yeah. And that's, one of the reasons why we can do what, well, not can do what we do, is do what we do, is because there's not many people out there that there's no real profit in it as such. We make a living. We've made a decent living. I've been very privileged. When I met my wife, um, my second wife, yes, um, to impress her, I, would, I took her to um, NEC, and there were Ferraris on the stands. You couldn't get anywhere near them. But the Ferraris that were on the stands, I had better Ferraris in my workshop. And so, basically, I took her and showed her the cars that were in my workshop, because the ones that were on the stands, you couldn't get anywhere near for the people that were around them. Stuart, what's the tr what's the truth about old cars? Is it that they're all made the same, 
or are the sum having completely taken them apart and, and, and restored them and rebuilt them are they all the same or there are some old cars that are on a different level to everything else you'd know tell us the truth well uh, these are only these are only my opinions there is no truth because at the end of the day I'm just a man who I've, I've just done an ACS that come to me with a brand new aluminium form body that was hand built. Now, like I said to the, the owner, that basically I am not an AC specialist. But then again, on the other hand, I will put as much effort into this or more of effort than most people will because I have a passion. And that, he, he lives up in the islands. He's a, he's a businessman. He's a very busy man. There's many a time I ring him and I don't get an answer and I won't get an answer for probably a couple of days because it's not the top of his value. He, he's, he's a businessman. There's other things that he keeps that ball rolling. And, but, that vehicle we've restored, um, and I've probably I've seen the man twice, and all the rest of it has been over text messages, autographs, how do you want me to do this? This is what we've done with this. Do you want that doing? And basically, he's not... This car he bought, I think, nigh on four years ago, and he's not... I've done 250 miles in this car. He's done probably 60 miles when he bought it, and that's all he's done. And I'm very privileged in, in a lot of respects because some of these people trust me enough to drive their valuable cars, their whatever. Because, But in one, another respect is because they realised that I will look after them just as good as they would, if not better. I have a customer who has a collection of cards, and yes, he allows me to take them to shows, he allows me to show them off, and things like that, and that is good for me, because at least I do get a little bit of what you would call the pleasurable thing. Because a lot of the restoring of cars is dirty, rotten work. You know what I mean? You've got to... Your dad was right. Say that again. Your dad was right, Stuart. It is, it is a, di right. a dirty business. Yes, we were right. Metal bashing. <laughs> I learned that a few years later. It, well, when I say a few years later, I may be faced up to it a few years later. I never told him you were right. I wouldn't would do that. But yet, 90% of the work that you do on classic cars is dirty work. And if you're not willing to do the dirty work, you don't get the nice bit at the end. Right, well, I'm going to get you to answer this question if it kills me. Go on. When I was in your workshops, you took me through. It, it was brilliant to be with you. and it was you, you, you showed me all kinds of interesting stuff. Fascinating. But particularly interesting to see parts of a Ferrari, which at the time wasn't even badged a Ferrari. It was the bottom of the range. It was one of the cheapest cars that you could buy from them. And it was a time when if you got into a Ferrari 
And after that, it got, I suppose you could say, even worse, but, you know, where you get in the Ferrari and there'd be all sorts of Fiat switches out of an Uno or something like that. When you actually take these things apart, some of them, you realise that even if it's a Ferrari, the materials it's made out of are often very basic. You showed me some interior pieces of cloth and they seemed poorly poorly made, not of the best quality by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, 60 years on, incredibly valuable because they're original. You know, and my point at the time to you was, wouldn't it be better to re-upholster or re, re, remake that part and use better materials? And you just looked at me because you knew I didn't really mean that because, of course... Things, as Jay Leno says, and he says it all the time, and I've got a lot of respect for that, I think he's the world's preeminent car enthusiast, a very, very knowledgeable man. As Jay Leno says, things are only original once. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the Dino that you're talking about has had quite a life. And, the, and I was told once um, by a very knowledgeable customer that it's all about the story and what has happened. And basically, the Ferrari you're talking about is a car that um, in, in the late 60s, 70s, early 70s, it was a higher car. Now, who would have a Ferrari Dino as a higher car? Well, I would imagine there have been some celebrities on that seat and... Um, because I don't think you'd be hiring it to your everyday man. But two years in, and now it's all documented, I've got letters and, and all the rest of it, it went out to New Zealand, and it was dismantled. And when I say dismantled, it was. There's dismantling, and there's dismantling. This is gearbox in pieces, engine in pieces, and when I say in pieces, everything off it. Everything out of it, all boxed up, all labelled. Very luckily, the man who took it to pieces knew exactly what he was doing, knew that it might be standing for quite a while get to get it ready to put it back to be together. But that car then stood for 40 years in boxes. 160 boxes with a minimum of four boxes in each box. Now... My customer, it came back to England, and my customer bought this car, thinking I must have been a wizard, because he asked, he, he bought it and said it just wants putting back together. Well, yeah, it does want putting back together, but before it wants putting back together, every little piece has to be restored, because there is no point otherwise. Just putting it back together, what you're going to finish up with. And in fairness, yes, you can turn around and say you've taken away a lot of the originality. Um, now, if it was a full car and you just wanted an original car, well, fair comment, but this car, you cannot put it back together without restoring it. And that's where we're at now. And like I say, I'm 65 now. And one thing I have learned is as much as the will, then sometimes the body isn't willing. And I'm feeling 
that no, it's it's not for me. But in saying that, over the last at least twenty years, I have had quite a lot of experience on taking these things to pieces and putting them back together. And I didn't realise that until I started on this job. And yes, somebody else is doing it, um, and I'm project managing it. But there's certain things that are in my memory that you can't actually see in books. Well, Stuart, it's tell the, us about, you showed, you showed me the wheels. Tell us, just explain to people what's involved in restoring a wheel well, on that Fiat Dino or Ferrari Dino, whatever you want to call it, back yeah. to perfect condition. Just explain the process and how much work and how many hours. Because people would just look at the wheels on that kind of thing. Oh, they look nice. Just explain what that involves. Right. Well, if, if I were explaining, actually, the first thing was that in the day, I've done a few sets of Dino wheels. And basically, they're made out of magnesium. Magnesium alloy. And magnesium alloy, it's quite a corrosive material. And especially once the weather gets to it. But it has to be sealed. Because as soon as you blast it or take the original process off the magnesium, the magnesium will corrode under the paint. You can put as much paint on as you like but it will still corrode. And it was shown to me by um, what used to be our chromer, and that was Brian at Town Egg Chroming, and he was quite a clever lad in his time, and uh, he's passed away now, God rest his soul. But he used to, what they called, alichrome them, and that would seal the wheel. But the only trouble is, the alichrome is only thou thick. Now, if you've got a piece of solid aluminium that's got pet marks in it, well, then, once you actually put something on it and then you don't want to cut through that material, how do you fill the, the pot marks in? And basically, especially when they're as complicated as something like pepper pot-type wheels where there's... 20 recesses, all with grooves and all the rest of it in that wheel. I can remember when I used to do quite a bit of work for uh, people who took the cars to the Northwest Ferrari concourse, and uh, one of the winning concourse people brought the wheels, and I told him how much it had cost, and he said, I'll do them myself, and yet he did do them himself. And But he did admit to me, when I saw him at the show, he'd done a fantastic job, but he'd spent a minimum of 30 hours a wheel to actually get them to the stage where, because all you can actually do is put material on and then take it off without cutting through to the alichrome. Once you cut through to the alichrome, then you're defeating the object. So... So probably I spent 25 hours a wheel by the time I got these wheels to where they are now. <laughs> For somebody to say you spent 25 hours on a wheel, 
Oh, you're taking the mic. That's a hundred. From where I'm looking, that's a hundred hours. Oh, do you do the spare as well? Is there a spare on a Dino? Oh, there isn't a spare. Five wheels. Five wheels. Hundred and twenty-five hours. Yeah. Not as many hours. Not as many hours as um, what I was told about yesterday. A gentleman came in, and uh, we had a chain gang gnashing that we uh, were looking at. Well, that we were doing some work on. And he came in, and he restores yachts. And he was telling us that uh, they'd restored, his company had restored a yacht, and it was 200 men for two years. A million hours were spent. A million hours. Wow. Was he, so, Ru- was he rushing the fellow there? <laughs> I hope no, not. No, no, no. <laughs> It'll have been impounded. Something like it does that comes out in conversation yeah. and it goes in and it stays, you know. Um, but, isn't, it, uh, isn't it funny? You get you get told stuff if, if you hang around with these people like we do, like a bad smell. In my yeah. case, not yours. You've actually got skills. I'm just, I'm just there for fun. Well, but here's, yeah, the, here's, here's the thing. I was saying you find things out. I mean, I, rem- I remember this is a yacht story, a bit of a yacht story. I remember um, this bloke saying to me, see that yacht next door? We were on a yacht, right? Like, there's no getting away from it. So see that yacht next door? I said, yeah. He said, see that picture there in the, like, the stateroom or whatever you want to call it? Because we were next, you know, we could see in from where we were and he said uh, I said yeah he said it's a Picasso that so I said uh, really and he said yeah 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 he said it's supposed to be he owns the painting the bloke and he had it um, he had it copied because the insurance company said oh uh, we can't you can't keep it on the boat we can't you know because people, people could just walk in and people could steal yeah. it so he had it copied but and he's supposed to keep, that's supposed to be the copy, and he's supposed to keep the real one in the safe. But he can't be bothered with that, so he put the copy in the safe, and that's the real one. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he went, he said, yeah, so who told you that? And he said, he told me that, Steve. And I was like, right, okay. And then, you, you just, yeah, you just, you just realise that there are people out there, and I think this is particularly with the, the sort of cars that you have in, because, you know, there was one new car, and I think you said you were doing it as a favour to a mate. Most of the cars that you had in were 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, and and of the very highest level, you know, the, the absolute creme de la creme. And beyond the pockets of the vast majority of people, including me and thee, but the people who tend to own those cars are very different to the people who own the modern-day supercars and hypercars, some are both. I know a few guys that are wealthy enough to have modern-day supercars and they've got a W.O. Bentley or a Lagonda or a Bugatti or a, a Spano Suiza or a Duesenberg or a Fraser Nash or whatever. But the people who are really only interested in the, the... What I find is, when they start getting into that older stuff, I wonder what you think about this. We haven't got much time left, but I'll, I'll get your take on this as well. When they get into that older stuff... They tend to lose interest in this new stuff com- almost completely, and they might have been mad for it. You know, all these two hundred mile an hour supercars. As soon as they get the teeth into a W.O. Bentley, a, a chain gang Fraser Nash, an ERA, a Bristol, a Lister Jaguar, whatever, 
they're interested in that new stuff just goes out the window because those old cars that I've just mentioned, cars like that, Alpha 8Cs, you know, whatever you want to talk about, they are something very special, aren't they? As soon as you get around them, you realise that. Yeah, yeah. Well, they worked to that. They, they, they couldn't afford... I'm, I'm just looking at a Bizzarini. Um, and they couldn't afford to build these cars like this any longer. These cars that that come out that are million pound plus and have cost, you know, like your Veyrons and, and all the rest of it, how much they've actually cost. But they've not got as much style as they. The, 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 the work that goes into them, the, the stainless um, chrome work and, and all the rest of it, they just, no. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Don't forget, we are now on Patreon, and that means you can directly support the show and ensure its continued existence by making a financial contribution. Uh, Please do so. We're at Patreon. It's dead easy to find. Just put Steve's Speed Shop Patreon into Google, and it'll take you where you need to go. 